You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Well, many people think that this is uh, a, a royal wedding psalm that is written for one particular king. In fact, like John Calvin just says, it's for Solomon. That's, that's his uh, just guess, I guess, as he looks at it. And there's a couple reasons in the text to think that. Um, it does seem to be written for one wedding in particular. I don't know if it's Solomon or not, but um, because it's here, we know it is not just for that one. This is a, a prayer for these um, royal weddings. So where do we get that it's a royal wedding? There's really two places. One is in the title you can actually see. It says, to the choir master, according to lilies, which appears to be the tune that it's supposed to be sung to. And it says, a mascal of the sons of Korah. So either a poem that was to that tune, or maybe it was a mascal is just a song by these sons of Korah. And then it says, a love song. And the word love there is a very, it's a word for um, a real tender type of love that would be very appropriate in a wedding. So we think this is actually, and go fact check me on this, the only psalm that was meant to be read, um, specifically written for the context of a wedding, and not just any wedding, but you'll see, and you heard it read, a royal wedding. But it's not just that one little note that says a love song. Actually, the content, I think, um, lends itself to that as well. Verse one, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. This is the scribe. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. This, uh, the psalmist here is saying, I am pleased to be able to write this for the king's wedding. And then the rest of it, you'll see he addresses the groom with a little shout out to God right in the center there. He talks to the groom and then he talks about the bride and then it's going to go back to the groom at the end. But when you start to read about the groom, you're going to start to get the picture that it goes even beyond the royal wedding that they're a part of right there. So it starts out in verse two to the groom. It says, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. This is the, the poet here is taking the, the role of the bride to extol the beauty of her husband on this wedding day. You can imagine, you know, on a wedding day, you, you get a guy to shower and put a tux on him and comb his hair and he's gonna look better than he normally does anyway on a wedding day. But this is the king. This is a royal wedding. You can imagine and you'll see everything happening and he is walking down and you can hear this scribe just extolling how glorious this day is. And then here's what it says to the king, to the groom. Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. I'm gonna show you something he says to the groom, something he says to the bride. We'll take a moment of application for husbands and wives, but really it's much broader than even that, and there's things that we can all get from this. Um, grace is poured upon your lips. What does that actually mean? Many who, who read this say that what it means is it's praising the eloquence of the king, um, which is possible, but I think there's a better way to understand it. When you look at the immediate context where it says, God has blessed you forever, seems like there's something unique God has done for you, king. And then the rest of the context in the Old Testament, when you pair the grace of God and the lips of a human being, it seems to indicate something else. And I think that's what's happening here. So you can see some prophets that are called. How'd you like to be a prophet and be called to go and speak the very words of God to people? Maybe you feel um, a little underqualified to do that. 
Well, the prophets in that day did as well when God would say, you are gonna go speak my grace to people, which is what they're doing. Even if it was a message of judgment, it was God had to deal with them, the covenant, if you do this, I will remove my blessing from you. And they did exactly what they weren't supposed to do. And he would send a prophet to say, remember what I told you I was gonna do? You've got time to repent and to change. That's actually a gift of grace that he's giving. And I'll just pick three times here. In Jeremiah, when Jeremiah gets his call in Jeremiah 1, he feels very unworthy. And then it says, the Lord put out his hand and he touched my mouth. That God extended towards him so that now he would be qualified to go and speak his grace to people. Daniel 10 has a very similar context to it. Daniel is, uh, it says he fell to the ground mute. He was so overwhelmed with the task that was given to him. And so God had one go and touch his lips, extended from God to touch his lips. And I think the clearest one is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. When Isaiah gets his call, he says, I am unworthy to be a prophet. I am a person of unclean lips. All the people are unclean lips. And you want me to go use these lips to speak your truth and your grace? No way. And so what happens? As he's getting this throne room scene from God, a seraphim takes a burning coal and touches it to his lips. And then here's what it says in Isaiah. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. And then... God says, who shall I send? And Isaiah, after receiving the grace of God, says, now I can go speak your grace. Here am I, send me. When we see this idea of grace poured on lips in the Old Testament, it looks like he is saying, you have received grace. Now go speak grace. I think this is a reminder to the king and a not so subtle reminder to say, you have ascended to be the highest man in the theocratic state of Israel, God's man on earth, the king, you have gotten there by the grace of God and the grace of God alone. And so, king, when you speak, you are speaking for me. And you had better speak grace, like the grace that you have received. I think that's what it's saying. I summed it up very simply to just say, your lips have been touched by grace. Now use those lips to speak grace. Your lips have been touched by grace. Now use those lips to speak grace. And you can see it's not just for the king, although the king has a, has a unique platform because he's got a lot of people that he can influence. And here today in just our congregation and people watching online, I know there's people that have a big platform that have strong influence in their community, that have huge social media followings, that have, uh, are business leaders, that have tons of people that look towards them for advice and for counsel and for guidance. You have been touched by grace, and if you are a Christian, we use our lips to speak grace. It, it's counter to how our culture works a little bit. It seems like the higher up you get, the more influence you have, the ruder you can be. Have you noticed this? I don't like that. Seems like the higher up you get, the ruder you are able to be. And people have to be forgiving because you're kind of the big person and they're the little person down here. And so that you get to be rude. And Christianity says, what are you talking about? Here is the highest person on earth. And he says, you speak grace to all the people that you have influence over. And so I think this is a really great ministry opportunity for Christians because as we have opportunities for influence and as, there's, um, as the world takes the opportunity, at times anyway, to, um, to, to, to bring the story back to themselves, 
to perhaps assume now all the other people need to do what I hope they would do, where I don't need to really be gracious. They should sort of be honoring me and gracious to me. We have an opportunity to the higher we get to be even more and more and more gracious in all of our public settings, in all the relationships that we have. And specifically, how would he have applied it in that day? The highest husband on earth. And this starts out by saying, grace. You have been given grace. Show grace. And especially in the context to that bride that is about to walk down the aisle. Husbands, married men, for just a moment, let me tell you. You are, um, if you're married, you are with a woman that knows that you know all her good and all her bad. And we have an opportunity to just shower grace upon her. Not because she's earned it. That's not grace. That's the opposite of grace. Grace, by very definition, is something you haven't earned. But by leading with grace and lavishing grace upon her, lavishing grace upon our brides in the way that God has lavished his grace on us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I will tell you one of the coolest things is, and this is just playing percentages in my years as a pastor, when a husband leads with genuine grace, no strings attached, genuine grace, no, uh, by the way, did you notice how gracious I was to you? Okay, good. I hope you feel bad for a little bit. Let's write it down. Let's write it down that I just showed you grace. Here you go. Not, none of that. When there, is, when there is leading with actual just pouring over of grace, I have seen more often than not a beautiful um, bolstering of a woman's heart and soul in response to grace. Oftentimes the default is maybe I'm a, if I'm a little louder, maybe if I cut her off, maybe if I, and, and maybe on the harsher edges a little bit, when we lead with grace and just push grace, you watch over time what happens to a woman's heart in response. That unmistakable grace. By the way, I'd say to single men, um, if you're not ready to lavish grace upon a bride, God bless you, you're not ready to be married. Don't be married yet. The king has received grace from God. He's able to pour it over on his kingdom and also to his bride. But he's also the head of the military forces in Israel. So look what it says. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. Verse four, in your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Isn't that interesting? Ride out like a warrior for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you, the hand you hold your sword, in awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Here he's giving um, the picture of the ideal warrior. The king was supposed to be a leader of the, war the warriors of Israel, and here is the ideal picture of a warrior. And then there's a little, a little aside, sort of, where God is praised in the midst of this. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Now it goes back to the king, and I want you to just get the splendor of this moment at this royal wedding. Therefore, God, your God, has appointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant, fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. How amazing is this scene? 
that, that he's describing. These ivory palaces, the processions, the gold, that's your sight, that's things you're seeing. The oil of gladness, the myrrh, the aloes, the smell, that's what he's smelling. The stringed instruments, things that you're, you're hearing. And then you know this follows with, you know, besides like the clothes they're wearing, the things they're feeling, um, this is gonna follow with, I'm sure, the greatest feast with the greatest food and the greatest wine, the greatest celebration. This is all five senses taken to the nth degree is what is being described here at this ceremony today. And you go, whoa, can anything possibly match the splendor and the beauty and the majesty of what we're seeing in the king right now? Here comes the bride. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear, it's the your there is feminine. This is clearly talking to the bride. Incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. I'll explain that one. And the king will desire your beauty since he is your Lord, bow to him. I'll explain that one too. Here's what he just said. The bride is coming forward and when it says forget your people and your father's house, this is a call to the bride on that day to leave her family and to cling to her husband. Now it doesn't mean you Reject your family, you ignore your family. It's the same thing that God says to Adam. We, we talk in premarital counseling all the time. This happens all the way back to the garden, that you leave and cleave, that you are forming not a rejection of the old, but an addition to, and you have a new primary family. That's all that this is talking about. And then when it says, uh, since he is your Lord, bow to him, um, really it is a sign, it, it is saying, show him the respect that he deserves for who he is. Now, in this case, he is the king, so that's probably why it uses the term Lord, but I think the simplest way to take this is that this is a Christian marriage where she is showing respect to her husband. I think that's the simplest way to take this, and I think that's what's happening. And I have to tell you, I, I, I feel like I talk about this all the time, I feel like this idea of just basic respect is completely gone in our culture today. It was, I will respect you as a person, I will um, I'll respect your opinion or I'll at least respect your right to an opinion. And now you start to see a lot of that is just gone. Like I might have said, if we're gonna lose one of those, I might not respect everybody's opinion. Some opinions are terrible. Some opinions are not very well thought out. So I might go, I don't know why I have to you know, ex exactly respect that if you haven't even thought it through, but whatever, you can say whatever you want. It's free country, right? But instead what's happened is people have gone back now to, I don't like this person, I don't have any respect at all for the human being that God has created and put in front of me. And it is so difficult in our age, isn't it, to say I might disagree with every single thing about this person. The things they talk about loudly, they may not, they may not have thought them through at all. But this is a person who bears the image of God on earth. They are created by him and they are loved by him. And so I'll start there. Amen. You see what we've got is a radical call in our culture for grace and respect to be extended. But again, I would say the same thing to, um, to wives here, um, that uh, the, the, the immediate context here is, the, is respecting the husband, honoring the husband. And ladies, I just want to tell you, married ladies, you got to know that I know we come across very, very tough. We come across like we don't need anybody, we don't need anything. The reality is, when you speak life and you speak respect and honor to your husband, it does the same thing for us that it does for you when we pour out grace upon you. It is lighting a fire within us and we can go now and take on the world. 
And it's the same kind of thing where, um, you know, with grace, instead of going, well, I think you're worthy of grace. Well, we're not worthy of grace. That's the whole point behind grace. Instead of saying, I will offer my respect if he is respectable, there's a way to say, I want to offer you respect in a way of the man that I know you can be. I know what just happened isn't you. I want to offer the respect and you grow into the man that I see that you are. This is what is called to do. And this is very consistent. Loving your wife, respecting your husband. This is very, very consistent with what the Bible teaches. In fact, the, um, the kind of quintessential passage on this is Ephesians 5. And at the end of it, he sums it all up and says, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is consistent throughout the whole scripture. And after it, you see the blessing of it. You see, the people of Tyre will seek favor with gifts, the richest of the people, all glorious, and the princess, princess in her chamber with robes, interwoven with gold and many colored robes. She is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they're led along as they enter the palace of the king. You know what the picture is? In a Jewish wedding, at least in that day, some, they still do this some today, as you're walking forward, all the bride would be there. It's kind of like bridesmaids, um, but it would be all the unmarried women would also walk with her. And especially at this wedding, you can see the king is looking out and going, there's all the fish in the sea, so to speak. There's all the women of the kingdom that, I, that as the king, you could go, I'll take her. Oh, well, no, not her, her. No, not her, her. Like here, here's all the other options out there, but that king is looking and saying, I am ignoring all of them. I am forsaking all of them. And in that whole group of women, I see the one woman that God is bringing for me. See how beautiful this is? Like if I could just tell you one way to apply this, um, I would say whether if you're married or if you're not, um, we are in our culture right now are trying to say, what is marriage? What does it look like? How should we do it? I get to do premarital counseling. I've shared this before. I've had it happen, I think, three times now. Almost explicitly, somebody has just asked me, how do you be married? Because they're looking around and going, nobody else has a clue how to do it. All my friends are miserable. How do we do it? And I just keep coming back to, here is what the Lord says. It is, I gotta tell you, it is the most romantic. It is the, the safest. It is the most man and woman exalting and ultimately God exalting type of union that you and I could never ever dream up on our own. But God has done it. So we just need to discover it and proclaim it. However, there is much more to this psalm than just a royal wedding. It goes back to the king now. Listen to this. Because it, gets, it was feminine use, now it's masculine use. And you're, this, as he closes it up, you start to see that you get the idea. It feels like more than just a psalm to be spoken at this one wedding. Verse 16 says, In place of your fathers shall be your sons. Meaning this throne is going to last from generation to generation. You will make them princes and look at it, in all the earth, which is interesting because you should be going, now wait a minute, this is the king over Israel, the throne will be over Israel, and it feels like we've gone from Israel now to the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations, therefore nations will praise you forever and ever. The names should be remembered from generation to generation. Okay, um, I'm gonna put up a list of um, names 
And I'm gonna see how many of you know, because we're supposed to know their names generation to generation, how many of you know which ones that could apply to, meaning which ones actually sat on a throne in Jerusalem, okay? Grace, can you put that up? All right. How many of those, if it says your name is gonna be remembered generation to generation, there's a bunch of names in the Bible. Let's see how many of the names we know. I'm not going to ask you to like, how many of you think two? How many think three? How many were kings of the, either the United Kingdom or when they split the Southern Kingdom and reigned in Jerusalem? <clears throat> you probably started out real good and went, ooh, Solomon, I know Solomon. <clears throat> and then Nathan, Ajiba, Benaniah, Jehoiada, Zadok, Abiathar, Ahaz, Jeroboam, Othniel, Mephibosheth, Ahijah, Omri, Ahab, Elijah, and Steve. I forgot to put Steve in there. <clears throat> You know how many of them were actual kings that this could apply to? Solomon. The other ones were kings of another kingdom or prophets, or I literally just looked up names and flip-flopped a few of the letters, and the names don't even exist. But this thing says that the names of the people who are gonna be on the throne will be something that will be known forever and ever. So what is he talking about? I'll give you a quick theology lesson here. Um, there was a promise to David in 2 Samuel, saying that there will be a king who will sit on the throne of David, who will come from the line of David, who will be a king on a throne forever. Hebrews chapter one takes this psalm and quotes this psalm and actually applies it to Jesus Christ the one who is in the line of David who will sit on the throne forever. It actually says this. So the book of Hebrews, it's, um, it's, it's talking to um, Jewish Christians who are wondering why Jesus didn't overthrow Rome especially and so I thought the kingdom was gonna be here. And he's saying, don't go back to Judaism. Follow Jesus Christ. He died and he rose and he's alive. And so um, he keeps saying he's better than, and he goes through, and it's better than the old temple, than the priests in the Old Testament. It's better than Melchizedek. It's better than even the angels. And, then it's, and he's saying to the angels, he said this, but to Christ, he said this. And here's what it says. But of the son, meaning of Jesus, this is in Hebrews 1, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So you see what just happened in this beautiful royal psalm. It also points forward to somebody else, the one who will sit on the throne forever that is from the line of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we talk about it, and I just say it's a messianic psalm. It's, it's looking forward to Jesus Christ as well. This is not just about the king, but it's about the king of kings, the ultimate one who had grace to give, and it poured off his lips continually. God, his father, has blessed him forever and ever. His name will be remembered forever. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's calling to the king in the psalm, take up your sword and fight, lead us into battle. And we know Jesus Christ is the ultimate, the final victor, that he leads the church against all the evil forces in the world today and will return again one day to destroy all evil. Yet at the same time with all that, what did we see about the king? Truth, meekness, righteousness. He loves righteousness, he hates wickedness. That's a picture of something that Jesus will fulfill perfectly. Perfectly. 
And unlike any earthly king that reigns for a while and dies, his throne is forever and ever. And what you see here is the application for us. What is the bride's response? And you know, the church in the New Testament is called the bride of Christ. The bride's response, the church's response, is what the bride gives a hint of and a shadow of. We do to the fullest respect, reverence, awe, and honor to truly the only one that is completely, utterly worthy of that. Just as the bride is called to leave her family and be joined to her husband, the bride of Christ is called to forsake all others and be bound to him. And the nations will praise him, it says, forever and ever. This is a picture of Jesus taking his role as the final David, as the old hymn says, great David's greater son. This is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And the psalmist is saying the plan of God is being fulfilled in the most majestic way right before his eyes. And how do we find a way to offer grace, love, honor to people around us? By remembering the one who did it perfectly for you and for me.